Brendan, you're in the front row. Good job. <laughs> Mom's sitting next to you. I was going to have all the teenagers stand up and come and sit in these first two rows. And Tracy said, no, don't you do that. <laughs> uh, I got an email this week from a mom, and it changed the whole trajectory of my teaching. Um, it was a family that used to attend here, and they sent their son off to a prestigious school in Virginia. And within the first semester, they've already persuaded him that the God of the Bible is a myth, and that Christianity is just a legend. And the resurrection happened over generations. And our young people are being attacked by a, an aggressive, atheistic agenda that wants to eradicate the God of the Bible. And they are particularly venomous and aggressive toward biblical Christianity. It's not Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, it's the Christian faith that's under attack. Because Jesus Christ claimed to be the exclusive way to God. He claimed to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those two things are offensive to our woke generation. That we are sinners and that there is a holy and righteous God who's calling us to repentance. But we, as a church, we need to be confronting the false gods of our age the same way that Elijah boldly went and told Ahab, rain is coming. And the God who answers by fire, let him be God. Several years ago, William Lane Craig called on Richard Dawkins to a debate. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. It was on the New York Times best-selling list. And William Richard Dawkins declined the debate. So William Lane Craig contacted Oxford University they found three of their best atheistic philosophers and they debated him in the Sheldonton Theater for almost two and a half hours. In some ways, I see William Lade Craig as an Elijah of our generation going into the dens of iniquity and calling out people that there is one true God and that Jesus Christ's bodily resurrection was a historical event. These books are numerous. A man named Sam Harris, who touts himself as a philosopher, who ridicules and mocks and makes jokes about believing Christians, had a book entitled this, The Nation That Turns Away from God. The new atheists are no longer content to simply blaspheme God. They are on a, a campaign to dispute and dissuade as many as they can from their true faith. Another recent book was written by a man named Christian Hitchinson called 
God really isn't that great. Atheists are now becoming celebrities and they rejoice in what they so call the death of God. Another thing about these new atheists, they have reserved their most venomous attacks for the Christian faith with a purpose in mind, a goal, and that is to seek to undermine the faith of the next generation. Polls have been taken. Young people who were from Bible-believing Christian homes Within their first year of college, 80% of them have walked away from their Christian faith. So my message today is for our young people, but for all of us as well, that we might be people who contend and confront the gods of our age and that we do it with passion, we do it with courtesy, and we do it with truth. We are to contend For the faith, number one. That's what we are called to do. When Elijah met Ahab in Acts, I'm going to be going to the book of Acts, 1 Kings chapter 17, he said, There will be no rain except by my word, Ahab. This is God's judgment. Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 24 says, The heavens will be brass and the earth will be bronze, and God will rain dust. And he went right to the authority of his day and confronted him with the God of the Bible. The Lord has called you and I to the exact same thing. Jude chapter 1, verse 3. Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you about your common salvation... It was needful for me to write to you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith, and the Greek word is hapax, which means the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. No other gospel, no other faith. It's been given once and for all. The first generation of believers had it. We are to be on the offensive not on the retreat. Verse 18 and verse, chapter 18 and verse 1, it says that it came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah on the third year saying, go, we are to be on the offensive. Go, present yourself to Elijah and tell him that rain is on the way. When the disciples were persecuted for their faith, The apostles went on the offensive. They lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. You made heaven and earth, the sea and everything that is in it. Who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why did the heathen rage? Why do the kings imagine vain things? The people have plotted against the Lord, against your Christ. For truly against thy holy child Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles have done whatsoever your hand and counsel have determined before to be done. And now, Lord, grant to your servants, behold their threats, that you may give us boldness, that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, 
that signs and wonders may be done by your holy child, Jesus. And the place that they were together was shaken. Can you imagine that? That if God would shake our hearts today and that we would leave this place and speak the word of God with boldness. We are to be on the offensive. Elijah, go, present yourself to Ahab. We are to be going in the authority of Christ. 1 Kings 18, verses 7 and 8. Now as Obadiah was on his way, suddenly Elijah met him, and he recognized him, and he fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered, he said, It is I. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. Elijah is here. Look at verse 15. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth is the Hebrew. Yahweh is the sovereign covenant God of Israel. Sabaoth means the armies of heaven. It is the Lord of heaven. I am representing him, Elijah said. It is this God whom I stand before. You go and you tell him, surely I will present myself to him today. We are to go, we're to confront, and we are to go in the authority and the power of the Lord of hosts. God is on our side. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Matthew 28 and verse 20. All authority, Jesus said, is given to me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples. We are to contend for the faith. We're to be on the offensive. We're to go in the authority of Christ. Second, we are to expect opposition. When Elijah met Ahab, verse 17, what does he say? Then it happened when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said to him, Is that you... O troubler of Israel, you're the problem. You're the one. You're the reason why we're having all this fallout. You're the reason we're not having rain. You are the troubler of Israel. Because he was representing the one true God and he was bringing a message of God's judgment. Well, you and I should expect opposition. Why? Number one, because our message isn't popular. Our message, just like Elijah's message, brings judgment. The lack of rain was a judgment on Israel's apostasy. Deuteronomy 28 and verse 24. Jesus said this to you and I in John chapter 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
We should expect opposition. We are the ones who are going to be called the troublers. It's those Bible-believing Christians who are refusing to take the mark, who are refusing to bow the knee and, and to, to, to say, hey, ba- hail, bail. Hail, hey, bail. <laughs> we, gotta, we, we, we can say, hey, bail, all we want to. <laughs> Just don't hail, bail. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to have any good illustrations this morning, but there was one. Okay. The world is going to hate us. Our message brings judgment. 1821. Let's look at 18 verse 21 of this chapter. Elijah came and all the people said, how long will you falter between two opinions? They will hate us because our message calls for a commitment. You can be a part of any other religion. I had a friend in Ireland, and he was invited to a Baha'i meeting. (laughs) And they all sat around the table, and they all pooled their ignorance. And they got to old Davy Shinner's, and he says, this is a bucket of rubbish. (laughs) He says, y'all are saying everything that contradicts each other, and you're all saying it's all truth. And he left there and found himself somehow to our Bible study. I remember how he found himself to his Bible study. He was renting them from a lady. I probably told this story before, but just for the, for the crack, I'll tell it again. He was renting from a lady, and she was coming to the Bible study, and she got all dressed up, and, and Davey says, well, where are you going, Veronica? And she says, I'm going to a Bible study. And he started laughing. He says, I'll go with you. And she says, well, come on, come on. They thought he was, she thought she was going to the pubs or something or going to the clubs. So Davey jumps in the car, and he pulls in front of my house, and Veronica says, I'm getting out. What are you going to do, Davey? Are you going to sit here? Well, I'll be in there for about two hours. She goes, she goes what, were you picking somebody else up to go to the pubs? He goes, no, this is where the Bible study is. So, so Davey ended up in our Bible study. But about two weeks before that, he had been at that Baha'i meeting, and he was smart enough to know that this is a bunch of baloney. But our message, it confronts and it expects people to make a choice and a decision. Jesus said it like this, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters abroad. No one can be neutral about Jesus. Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one or he will love the other or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't be neutral. To be neutral about Christ is in effect to reject him. So we should expect opposition because our message is not popular. And secondly, our message is based on objective truth claims. It's not based on how you feel. It's not based on your interpretation or what you think the Bible says. It is what thus saith the Lord says, and we don't have the right or the privilege to be smorgasbord Christians. It's not pick it and choose what we want to believe. Either we believe all of it or we reject it. And that's what Elijah was telling the prophets of his day. How long are you going to halt between two opinions? How long are you going to wish you wash back and forth? 
If God is God, then serve Him. Our message is based on objective truth. Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, 1 Kings 18, 23 through 24. Let's read that together. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on wood, but put fire, no fire under it, and I will prepare the other bull and I will lay it on the wood and I will put fire under it. Then you will call on the name of the Lord your gods and I will call the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. Point number three this morning. The false prophets, the false gods of our age, they have no fire. They don't. I found the four best arguments that the gods of our age are leveling at our young people, and they're ridiculous. But we need to equip our young people. We need to be equipped with an answer. We are told to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Brother Dennis was asking our young people about four weeks ago about what would you say if someone said this about your faith? And they sat there and they kind of looked at each other with him hawed around with blank faces. And it was a wake-up call for us as a church as us as believers to equip our people, to equip our young people so that you are ready for an answer. The first thing that has no fire, the Bible is like the telephone game. That's their number one argument. The Bible's like the telephone game. You said this and said this and said this and said this, and therefore the Bible is not trustworthy. Here's the truth about that. The Bible is not passed on and translated from one translation, from another translation, from another translation. The Bible is translated from 24,000 manuscripts. Let me say that again, 24,000 original manuscripts. The Bible is the only book of antiquity that can boast of that kind of manuscript evidence. The Bible is not written thousands of years later. The Bible manuscripts go back to 85 A.D. We don't take a translation and translate that from that. The Bible takes a translation from the original languages. Every translation, every modern translation is not a new translation of an old translation. It goes back to the original manuscripts. Unlike the Book of Mormon which is impossible to do a new translation because there are no manuscripts to take it from. In fact, when you translate the Book of Mormon into another language, it's nothing but a paraphrase because it's a translation of a translation. The Bible alone has the antiquity to back it up. Number two, the fire that doesn't fall. The Bible was written in the second century. And therefore, it has no reliable history. What is the internal evidence? I'm going to give you four evidences. The number one, the internal evidence. The internal evidence clearly shows that the New Testament, 90% of it was written before A.D. 60. 90% of the New Testament was written before A.D. 60. How do we know that? Because Peter, writing in his second epistle, said that the letters that were written by Paul are considered 
Scripture. That's a third of our New Testament right there. Paul wrote Timothy, and he considered Matthew and Luke and the book of Acts as Scripture. That's another third of our New Testament. The Apostle John wrote John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. That makes up almost our entire New Testament, and he died in 95 A.D. The Bible was not written over thousands or hundreds of years. The internal evidence proves it. Historical evidence confirms this, that our authors were very familiar with the Roman world. I'm just going to choose the author Luke. Luke mentions Quirinius as the governor of Syria when, uh, when Claudius Caesar, not Claudius Caesar, Augustus Caesar makes a decree that everyone should be registered for taxation. Archaeologists and biblical critics used to laugh at that until a document that was found that proves that Quirinius was governor of Syria twice, one in 7 AD, but also in 4 BC, the exact year when Caesar Augustus gave the decree, Luke was proven correct. Not only did Luke write that, but Luke also records that in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Jesus began his earthly ministry. We know from historical records that that was 11 A.D. when he began his reign. Fifteen years later, that's 26 A.D. If Jesus was born in 4 A.D., that makes Jesus 30 years old, exactly what the historical records tell us. Again, Luke was spot on. Luke goes on to say in the book of Acts that there was a decree that was given by Tiberius Caesar in 49 A.D. when all the Jews were expelled from Rome and every Roman historian tells about this expulsion. There was a strong movement of anti-Semitism in the first century because many Jewish people were converting to Christianity and the Jews were squabbling among themselves. And so Tiberius says, I'm just going to expel them all from Rome. In Acts chapter 18, Paul meets Priscilla and Quilla, who recently moved to Corinth because they had been expelled from Rome. Again, Luke is correct. Luke tells us that Paul was in the city of Corinth in 52 AD because he records that Gallio was the governor of Achaia. Again, archaeologists have found the Gallio stone dated at 52 A.D. Time and time again, Luke has proven to be historically accurate. So we have internal evidence showing that the Bible was written very early. We have historical evidence confirming it. Not only do we have all of this, we have the testimony of a man named Sir William Ramsey, who was an atheist from, 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 from Scotland, and he went with the sole purpose of discrediting the New Testament, and he came back as a Bible-believing Christian. So we have the historical evidence, we have internal evidence, but we also have external evidence. What I mean by external evidence, there were authors in the first century from 110 A.D. to 130 A.D. The three big guys were Tertullian, Irenaeus, and Clement. They were called the early Greek church fathers. And they wrote letters to each other. And you know what they were writing? They were quoting the New Testament books, writing to each other. So they were already had the 27 books of the New Testament as early as 110 A.D. That's external evidence showing that the Bible is not written late. 
We've got more evidence, and this is indisputable scientific evidence that the New Testament was written before the end of the first century. The earliest papyrus manuscript that we have dates from 95 A.D. to possibly 125 A.D. It's called the um, John Reynolds papyrus. It's in Manchester, England, and you can go to the museum and see it. It's of the Gospel of John. And if you look in Wikipedia, it says that the Gospel of John was written in 150, and yet we've got a fragment saying that it was written in 95 A.D. And John was the, the last living apostle. But just recently, a mask was discovered in Egypt made out of paper mache. And as they were peeling the paper layers back, they were dating this paper mache at 85 AD because of the secular documents that were written on this mask. And then they peeled back the next layer, and it was the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark was written in Rome. The thoughts of Peter. It finds its way all the way in Egypt in 85 A.D. That means the Gospel of Mark was probably written in 40 A.D. There is no time for myths and legends to be introduced in the New Testament. One of the greatest authorities is a man named Paul Mayer. And he was the professor of antiquities at Western State University in Michigan. And he says, without a doubt, the Bible traces its historical roots to eyewitness accounts free of mythology and fabrication. So we've got internal evidence. We've got external evidence. We've got historical evidence. We've got manuscript evidence. The gods of this age have no fire. It's not the telephone game. The Bible wasn't written over many years. The, second, the third fire that they say is that the, the resurrection was something that the church later developed into its theology. The belief in the resurrection was formulated over a long period of time, and therefore it's the product of the early Christian church, and it has no historical credibility. However, we can trace the resurrection to as early as 30 A.D. by its greatest enemy, the Apostle Paul. There's no explanation for his conversion. He was excelling among many of his contemporaries in Judaism, being exceedingly zealous for the traditions of the Jews. But when God was pleased to separate him from his mother's womb, he conferred not with flesh and blood, but went into Arabia for three and a half years. Now, when did he have a revelation that Jesus Christ was resurrected? It was on the road to Damascus, wasn't it? And we can trace that back to 30 A.D. Well, how do we do that? We start with 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. I received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that Lord Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and he rose again the third day, according to the Scripture. That letter was written in 55 A.D. He says, I delivered unto you what I also received. Well, when did Paul deliver it? Acts chapter 18, he was in Corinth. That's when he delivered it. That was in 52 A.D. We're getting closer to the resurrection, aren't we? Paul was at the Jerusalem Council. 
We know the Jerusalem Council was in 49 AD because it was right after the expulsion of the Jews from Rome. Acts 15. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 2, after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem by revelation. After 14 years. So let's take 49 AD and let's subtract 14 years. We're at 35 AD. Before that, Paul says, I went into Arabia and then I returned to Damascus and I stayed in Arabia for three years. So now when did Paul see the resurrection? As early as 32 AD. Christ was crucified probably right around 29 to 30 AD. The resurrection story started 40 days after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. I'm sorry, 50 days at Pentecost when Peter says, you by wicked hands have crucified him and we are eyewitnesses of his resurrection. There is no fire. The false gods of our age have no fire. The fourth fire, science and philosophy have disproved the Bible. Well, all philosophers agree that you cannot have an infinite regress. All philosophers agree with that. Aristotle, he called this force the immovable mover, the uncaused cause. Everything that exists has a cause. It's common sense. Philosophers have often asked this question. What properties must the first cause have in order to create time, space, and matter? What properties? The creator must be, must be a being outside of time. He therefore must be eternal, non-spatial, or physical, or spirit. And since this, since this creator is both outside of time and spirit, he must be changeless. That's what philosophers agree with. Now, what does the Bible say? Does our God fit that criteria? Is our God outside of time? Amen. Is our God outside of space? Amen. Is our God changeless? Is our God spirit? Psalm 90 and verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast made the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. John 4.23, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, who is the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible, invisible, thrones and dominions, powers, principalities, all things were created by him and for him, and in him all things hold together. That is our Jesus. That is our Lord. That is our God and our Savior. 1 Timothy 1.17 Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Is our God changeless? Malachi 3.6 I am the Lord God. I change not. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Yes, philosophers, they have no fire. And what about science? Oh, my goodness, I could be here all day talking about the masters of our creation. 
just take DNA. It is one of the most complex languages that has to be decoded. And every one of us know that only comes from intelligence. Cosmology proves scientifically that our universe began to exist, as well as the laws of thermodynamics. Einstein, who was an atheist, hated that thought so much that he had to fudge his own mathematical formulas to try to dismiss the reality that our universe had a beginning. Our God is the one who brings fire down. The Bible, no other religious book, has been written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years, written in three different languages and on three different continents, and yet has a unifying theme. And what is that theme? Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. By the seed of the woman, I will crush the serpent's head. Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, came to die on a cross to take away the sin of the world. The first Adam fell, and the second Adam came to redeem us. Creation. Yes, there's fire that comes from creation. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what they made known of God is manifest in them. For God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of His creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that what? So that every one of us today are without excuse. Our God brings the fire down. Our conscience, as many have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. For when the Gentiles, which who did not have the law, do by nature the things that are contained in the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, which show the law written in their hearts, their conscience accusing them. Romans 2.1 Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are. That judge For whenever you judge another, you just simply condemned yourself because when you judge another, you do the exact same things. God's message brings down fire. God is calling all men everywhere this morning to repent. So I've got to ask that question to us today. How long? How long will we limp between two opinions. If Jesus Christ is Lord, and if Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and God is a just God, and God has vindicated His Son, and God has the authority to give you all righteousness if you will simply put your faith in Him. Today, 
I'm asking you, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Jesus Christ died for your sin, today is the day of salvation. And as a believer, Elijah said this, Go and repair the altar. If you're a lukewarm Christian today, and you really haven't been zealous for the Lord, maybe it's time to go and rebuild the altar of Yahweh, the one true God. Maybe you've been a friend of the world. When Elijah asked them, who are you going to serve? They said nothing because they wanted to keep one foot in Baal worship and one foot in Jehovah worship. It doesn't work that way. James chapter 4 and verse 4 says, Know you not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wants to make himself the friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. As believers, we've not been given a mandate to stop the rain. We've not been given a mandate to call fire literally down from heaven. But just like Elijah, we have been called to confront the gods of our age. Elijah had two weapons. He says, Oh, Lord, hear. And God, I am here at that command of your word. Those were his two weapons. And God has given you and I the exact same weapons prayer, and the Word of God. At the end of William Lane Craig's debate in Oxford, you could hand in questions. And the last question that was asked, the moderator turned to the crowd of about 300 skeptics. And he said, after today's presentation, how many of you believe and a biblical creator God. And almost the entire auditorium raised their hands with an affirmation. You see, the gods of this age must be confronted. The gods of this age have no fire. And the God of the Bible, he is packing some heat, isn't he? And he can't be refuted. When God's word is proclaimed and an unbeliever or an outsider enters into your church, he is convicted by all, he's called accountable by all, and the secrets of his hearts are disclosed. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. 1 Corinthians 14, 24. That's our God. And wouldn't it be exciting to see God begin to do that at North Valley Bible Church? That's what God wants to do, and He wants to use us. So today, I'm going to give you an invitation. If you've been limping between two opinions, when we stand to sing, I simply want you just to come down here and grab my hand and say, Pastor Cross, today I've decided to follow Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're a believer and you've just been lukewarm and you want to come down here and you just want to grab my hand and say, Pastor Cross, 
Today, I want to courageously confront the gods of my age. And I no longer want to limp between two opinions. Jesus Christ is my Lord and Jesus Christ is my Savior. And I want to follow Him with an undivided heart. Let's stand together as we sing our invitational hymn.